Ephesians chapter 2 now. So let's open up our Bibles, if you would. We've got a little passage from Ephesians and then a little passage from John. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. I almost want to read the whole of chapter 1 again just because it's a turning point here, but I'm not going to do that in the interest of time. But in this turning point, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then over to John and chapter 11. This is the story of the raising of Lazarus, and we're just going to pick up the last few verses. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lord, we ask this morning that your book would live for us. Your book is alive and active. It's always alive and active. It's us who are the problem. It's not the transmitter, it's the receivers. And we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would enliven our minds, that you would unstop our ears, and that you would clear away the fog from our brains and enable us to see and glory in the risen Christ in his word. It's in your name and for your sake we ask it. Amen. Well, within the last four months or so, the New York Times opinion section published a piece by a professor of philosophy named Crispin Sartwell. He teaches over here in Pennsylvania somewhere. And the piece was entitled, Humans are Animals, Let's Get Over It. And the byline of the story, or the column, read, it's astonishing how relentlessly Western philosophy has strained to prove that we are not squirrels, which is, I think, to sort of mischaracterize lots of things right out of the gate, and immediately I go, okay, this guy has an agenda, and it's not the truth, but uh, there's no theologian or philosopher that I know of who has denied in the Western tradition that we are animals. But plenty of them have denied that we are merely animals. 
that our animal nature is all that there is to us. Western philosophy, for the most part, has tried to explain why we seem so different from every other living thing in the world, even the the highest and most obviously intelligent animals. And of course, much of this arises from the Christian conviction that man was created in the image of God and that our bodily nature, which we clearly share with animals, so much so that we use animals in scientific experiments to reliably predict how humans might be affected by a drug or an environmental pollutant or some chemical. I always say that my dad was the most highly, um, highly paid exterminator on the planet because all he did was make monkeys and dogs and hamsters and whatever else breathe things, and then when they died, cut them up and said, okay, what killed them? And that was his whole career in science, is, you know, make this thing breathe this thing, because then we can predict, for instance, how uh, carcinogenic talcum powder might be, or, or at what temperature is it unsafe for people on a flight line to be exposed to unburned jet exhaust. But we have this other part of us, don't we? We're not just animals. We have uh, something that's invisible. Sometimes we call it our spirit. Sometimes we call it our immortal soul or our rational soul. It's the part of us that makes us us. It's the part of us that will continue to exist no matter what after our bodies die. Now let's talk about that word death for a minute. What is death? Well, we tend to think of dying as ceasing to be, but that's not really what it is at all. Even when your body dies, even when it decays, it doesn't cease to be. It becomes very disorganized, um, but it doesn't cease to be. There's actually a law in physics, the first law of thermodynamics. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change form. So the, the atoms and the molecules in your body simply return to the dust from which we are formed as God told us it would when he cursed Adam in Genesis 3.19. And of course, we just said that the non-physical part of you survives eternally. It survives intact, so to speak. It's capable on the other side of thinking, of willing, of desiring, of experiencing pain or experiencing pleasure. So what is death then? Well, well, let's start with physical death. To be dead physically is to no longer be capable of interacting in an appropriate way with the physical world, in the way that sustains your body's life. The, the oxygen is still there, but you can't use it. You can't breathe it in. The food that fuels your body is still available, but you're no longer capable of extracting energy from it. The water might be in a glass by your bed, but your body can't use it, even if it's poured into your mouth. Electricity still exists, but your pacemaker cells in your heart can no longer use it to make your heart beat. In other words, the ongoing, self-organizing, metabolic chemistry experiment that is your bodily life comes to an end. Because for one reason or another, a significant subsystem of your body can no longer function as it was designed to function, and that creates a cascade failure. Take cancer, for instance. As a hospice chaplain, dealt with a lot of cancer. 
And it was kind of actually comforting to me to have cancer demystified in some ways. According to the hospice doctor I used to work with, cancer is basically a wasting disease. Cancer is malformed cells that are your cells in some organ or system in your body that no longer function like they should, and then they start to grow and multiply really, really quickly. And it takes a lot of energy to grow and multiply as fast as it does, and they steal that energy that they need to grow and multiply from all the other cells in the body. And that continues until those greedy cancer cells take so much away from everyone else that the cells can no longer function and your body dies. And it takes the cancer with it. So what is death? Well, let me repeat. Death is the inability of a living thing to interact with its environment in the way that it was designed to function and in such a way that its necessary processes cease. We have a step before we get to death, don't we? It's called dying. To be dying is in the process of being in a system decline where if nothing changes, the outcome of the process will be death. And the Bible clearly distinguishes between death and dying. Not only that, the Bible actually says that both states are true of the lost human being at the same time. We are both dead and we are dying. In Genesis 2.17, God speaks to Adam about the forbidden tree, and he says, don't eat it. And then he says, quote, in the day you eat of it, in Hebrew it's mot Tamut, literally dying, you will die. In the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. On that day you eat of that tree, Adam, some part of you will immediately cease to be able to interact with its environment in a way that's congruent with life, with how it was designed to function. In the day you eat of that tree, Adam, some part of you will die. Another part of you will begin the process of breakdown and disintegration in such a way that the inevitable outcome will be that it will one day cease to be able to interact with its environment as it was designed to do. That part of you will be dying from the moment you eat of that tree. And so it will be also for all of your offspring after you. When they come into this world, one part of them will be dead and another part of them will be dying. Now, clearly, Adam's body and Eve's body, for that matter, continued to function and continued to interact with the physical environment in a relatively appropriate way for a long, long time. Actually, do you know how long Adam lived? Adam lived 930 years. And then it says in Genesis 5:5, he died. So which part of Adam was the dying part? Was it the non-physical part or the physical part that was dying from the moment he ate that fruit? You can answer. Or maybe you can't. It's the physical part, okay? And what part of Adam died on that day? What part of Adam immediately ceased to be able to functionally interact with its environment as it was designed to do in such a way that it could draw what we call life from that environment? Well, that was the non physical part. 
to the non-physical part or the spirit or the soul, as some might say? Did it cease to exist when it died? No. It ceased to be able to draw what it needed from its environment that would enable it to continue to function as it was designed. And what is the proper environment for the invisible part of us that we call the spirit or the soul? Well, the proper environment for the soul is God. It's to be united to and immersed in God. It's to have God inside of you and to be inside of him in the way that your body is both bathed constantly in the air and it draws the air into itself to extract life. The spirit was designed to feed on God in the way that the body feeds on food. The spirit drinks in God. The spirit thirsts for God as the body thirsts for and drinks in pure water. The spirit sees light as the eye takes in the sunlight. Your heart has eyes and can see God, Paul said in Ephesians 1. The spirit hears the voice of God as the ear hears the voice of the eternally beloved person in your life. And when Adam ate, his link to that vital spiritual environment, that environment for which his spirit was created, was severed. Now here's the important part. We talk about body wisdom or body knowledge, and that, that's the idea that your body somehow has the ability to sense changes in the environment that affect it, and then it makes changes of its own to adapt to the environment. Even to the point of switching on, we found now certain genes on and off. Um, and your conscious mind never knows that it's doing it. Your conscious mind isn't involved in the process. Your body just automatically responds. Now when your physical body dies, does it know it's dead? No. You could put your physical body in cold storage after it's dead and it doesn't shiver. You can cremate it and it doesn't draw away from the flames. It no longer knows anything. And it's the same with a dead soul. The dead soul doesn't know what it's missing. The dead soul has no idea of spiritual air and spiritual light and spiritual words and spiritual food and spiritual water. The presence and the power of God are all around it, all the time, and the dead soul derives no benefit. The light of God falls on the dead soul, and it's like shining a flashlight in the eyes of a corpse. The pupils will never dilate. The word of God weaves sweetly all around the dead soul, and it's like putting AirPods in the ears of a corpse. It doesn't matter how tasty the playlist is, he can't hear it. He won't get up and dance because he can't. Now at last we come to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What does he mean by that? Does he mean you were dying in trespasses and sins? No. Greek is a perfectly good word for dying and Paul didn't use it. He used it other places and other passages for other reasons, but he didn't use it here. Does he mean you were kind of sick in trespasses and sins? No. Does he mean you had made some mistakes in trespasses and sins? No. He's saying 
You Ephesian Christians who I've just spent chapter one instructing about the phenomenal benefits of being in Jesus Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Your souls did not know God. They did not see God. They could not hear God. They were unaware of God. They could not respond to God. You were a spiritual corpse. And so were all of you here in this room. And so was I. And so are all people. Now I ask you, what can the dead do on their own? Nothing. Stink. That's it. The dead can do nothing on their own. They can't rise up and walk on their own. Unless it's a horror movie. They can take no initiative. They can make no move towards that which would cause life. If you're in the hospital and a person has just coded in the hospital, the the person who's on the table coding doesn't run to get the crash cart, charge the paddles, put them on his own chest and go clear and give himself a shock to start his heart again. No, he can't. If the dead are going to live, someone else must administer the treatment. Surely you can see that. The help must come from the outside. And as a corollary, you can see that the initiative to help must also lie with the person who helps. The dead person can't even say, hey, could you help a brother out here? I'm dead. He can't do anything but lay there. Furthermore, the one who would help must have the power to help. Good motives aren't enough if you don't have the equipment or the training. And this is true of the physical dead. It's also true of the spiritual dead. And so if the spiritually dead are going to live, they must be brought to life by one who can raise the dead. By one who, in the words of Romans 4.17, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If the dead are going to live, God has to do it. And that's just what Paul says happened to those Ephesian Christians. He says that actually just a little further in this passage that we're reading. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Are you a born-again Christian? Are you an inheritor of the blood-bought promises guaranteed to you in Christ Jesus? You were dead. And God loved you, says Paul, even in your deadness. And out of that love, says Paul, he made you alive. And all of the sudden, something happened, and you knew God, and you bathed in Christ, And you were inseparably united to Christ. Your eyes were opened. Your ears were unstopped. You drew breath into your spiritual lungs. And your spiritual heart came alive and began to beat for Christ. And you rose and you went forth to follow Christ forever. That's what happens when you're born again. 
That's why the church, and the Reformed church in particular, has always believed that the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead is both a physical historical event and also a kind of parable about how Jesus saves a soul. The dead man was in the grave four days. The sisters didn't want the stone moved because they knew that after four days in the heat of that place, the odor of decay would be strong. So the man was clearly dead. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't swooning. He wasn't close to death. He was dead, and he was decaying. And his sisters wanted him back desperately. Didn't they? You know the story. Mary was so mad at Jesus, she wouldn't even come out to talk to him when he showed up. And when she finally did come out, the first words out of, his, out of her mouth were, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she was right. He wouldn't have. So the sisters wanted him back. They had the will, but they didn't have any way. Lazarus was one who was beloved by Jesus. Everyone could see that. The, this passage actually contains the shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. And Jesus wept for love of Lazarus and for love of his sisters. And they were smart enough to do what Jesus said. They rolled that stone away. And Jesus stood in front of that tomb and he prayed. And then he said with a commanding voice, Lazarus, come out. And in an instant, that decayed flesh was somehow miraculously regenerated, and it became warm with life, and the heart began to beat, and the lungs were filled with air, and the eyes opened, and the ears heard the sweet sound of the voice of the Master. And in obedience to this divine voice, the man rose off of that narrow shelf that had been carved into the tomb wall and stood swaying for a moment before comically hopping with bound hands and feet towards the sunlight visible through the wrapping on his face. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And a living, loving, fully alive man went forth into the world. Loved ones, each conversion, each person who is in Christ, each person who comes to Christ or will come to Christ under the ministry of this church, each one called from spiritual death to spiritual life is a miracle. Just like the raising of Lazarus from the dead physically. The raising of a dead soul from its death is a miracle. It's a regenerating miracle. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You're a miracle if you're in Jesus. You were without hope and without God in the world. And in great love and in great pity, God made you alive. You like to think you had something to do with it. And you did have a little part to play after he turned the switch on. But he's the one who did it. He woke you up from the dead. And he made you alive through Christ. And that is an act of pure 
grace. We're going to find out later on in this verse, this passage, that uh, it's really astonishing that he would do that given our nature. We're following the devil willingly. We're by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God was due to us and richly deserved. And he said, no, I'm going to have love. And I want to wake you up. In his great love and pity, God made you alive through Christ as an act of pure grace. Now let me ask you, how could you not spend the rest of your life worshiping him, adoring him, thanking him, loving him, serving him? How could you not reorient your whole life around him? You were dead in trespasses and sin, but God made you alive. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.